Welcome to World Wide Waste, a podcast about how digital is killing the planet and what to do about it. Katie Singer writes about nature and technology for Wall Street International magazine. She spoke about the Internet's footprint at the United Nations 2018 Forum on Science, Technology and Innovation, and in 2019 on a panel with the climatologist Dr. James Hansen. An electronic silent spring is her most recent book. Katie's work about the energy, extractions, transcontinental shipping, greenhouse gas emissions, and toxic waste involved in manufacturing, operating, and discarding the internet, electric vehicles, and solar PV and industrial wind systems is available at www.rweb.tech letters. I read at some point from Greenpeace, the internet is the largest thing that humanity has built. And so it's electricity use and it's energy used, greenhouse gases emitted, toxins emitted, um, extractions required, worker hazards, all of that would be in proportion to it being the largest thing that we have built. I'm touched by your saying that I've been thinking about this a long time because that's true. And I, the fact is, I am still learning something every day that blows me away. I just get shocked every day about, about this technosphere that we continue to create and it continues to grow. To even think about the idea that, that, that the internet or, you know, and all the infrastructure that it taps into is you know, the single biggest global thing, it ties together this mega global architecture infrastructure around the world. Uh, and it is, yeah, uh, you know, when you would think about it in that sense, the the greatest structure uh, that that has ever been uh, put together by by humans. I think one what's very mm, gripping for me is how rarely people know that <laughs> that that will say oh if you fly on an airplane that will really impact the planet. I'm trying to think of other things that we're concerned about. We're not noticing how much tech, these electronic technologies impact us and there there i would say the impacts remain invisible to most of us and we continue to build it without awareness of their impacts and that's a big problem um we're, we're still looking to electronic technologies to reduce climate impacts to reduce toxic waste um, even just logging in to this conversation, at some point I got a message that said, thank you for not using paper. Thank you for doing this on, you know, for having your meeting um, online or, or not, not thank you for doing it on paper, like that I didn't travel to do it. Yeah. Um, and, but the fact is there is so much harmful stuff involved in this very podcast and i i can break some of it down and then we can talk about what goes into one smartphone if you like sure sure and you know one thing that i learned relatively recently was that that you know if we were if we were having this over a traditional phone line and we we had a recording mechanism as connected with that phone line that if and we had an hour uh, call that the traditional phone line that would create about about four megabytes of data, three point five or four megabytes of data, but this call, just audio, uh, now will uh, create about twenty seven megabytes of data. So, you know the. And wait, I have a I have a question there for you. If we had if we were doing this with video. Then how many megabytes? Oh, about have? about two hundred and seventy or three hundred uh, megabytes. It it goes up 
you know, and that's just standard video. If we were doing it in, in high definition video, it could easily get to a gigabyte or 1.2 gigabyte uh, for, for an hour. So we've gone from an old traditional landline phone over um, a wire with about 3.4 uh, 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 3.5 megabyte to with a, a very high definition, you know, uh, video to 1.2 gigabyte. Uh, in the pro, so th there's the scales of, but even the audio, the audio over the the internet is less efficiently delivered uh, than the audio over a telephone line. Uh, and how many? Concept. How many? Did you say we're in megabytes or gigabytes? With megabytes. Uh, well, from the research I've I've done, a, a traditional phone line call of an hour would be about three point five megabyte. Uh, it would cause about 3.5 megabyte of data. A typical Zoom or or a Skype, just audio, for an hour would be somewhere around 27 megabyte. Uh, so about 10 times more, uh, eight, nine times more or so than so. Uh, you know, because phone lines are designed for audio, whereas the web is designed for everything. So it's not as efficient at any one thing, so to speak. So let me see if, if I can break down what I understand the main energy guzzlers are. Okay. First, we start with everyone having a device in their hands or on their desktop. And that device has to be manufactured. And that is called embodied energy or embedded energy. And there are also, of course, extractions involved. And I'm gonna get back to that and talk more about embodied energy. But that is one main guzzler, basically manufacturing each device and then manufacturing each part for the infrastructure that makes the communication, the machine-to-machine -machine communication possible. Then we need access networks. So in order for me to connect to um, the internet, I need, I'm on a corded system here. I'm on a desktop. I don't own a mobile device, but, um, I've got a modem and then it connects to a, an internet server and that internet server connects to your internet server, you know, a, across continents. Um, so access networks are major. Just to clarify, mobile access networks use about 10 times as much energy as wired access. Uh, um, that technology is changing. You would probably know way more than I do, but it, you need radio transmitters and battery backup and cellular antennas and all that stuff. Um, but all of that takes manufacturing and then it takes energy. The third thing would be data centers. And that's where conversation will be recorded. And then eventually people can access it by, you know, the, the link that you provide, but it gets stored in a data center. And data centers are everywhere. They're, they're at universities, they're in office buildings. Some of them are so large that they're visible from outer space. And they're basically covered from floor to ceiling with servers, computers, and they get hot. Those computers get hot. So they also need air conditioning. I believe that the air conditioners and swamp coolers take up about 40% of the energy used in a data center. All that air conditioning also uses water. I live in the high desert and we have Facebook planning really big data centers here and it's hot here and the air conditioners take water 
you begin to see how much it takes just to do this podcast. We because we have expectation, the internet being available twenty four seven. We are asking for an awful lot of electricity. That those are some of the the main guzzlers. I would still like to talk more about embodied energy, but I'm curious what your response is to all these things because I. Yeah, no, that makes makes a lot of sense. One one of the things I learned about you know data centers recently is is that. Um, in many of their sustainability or renewable accounting models, they don't account for the servers. They they focus on the electricity, which is obviously important, but um, a server can uh, have, as you say, an embodied energy that um, can create at least one ton of CO2 during its manufacture. Servers can be very intense uh, electronics in manufacturing and, and a lot of the data centers do not calculate the CO2 of their servers. They they just um, they pretend that problem doesn't exist and and uh, yeah. and they ignore they ignore the the embodied CO2 in the server in the and, and yeah. a data center is a factory of servers. And and they well so let me talk a little about that. And also I've heard, and this is from someone who worked in a data center, that they would replace the servers every three or at yes. most four yes. years. And sometimes, what the, and it's not uncommon, they will actually destroy those perfectly working uh, servers. They'll shred them for security reasons uh, to, mm -hmm. to protect the data. So they'll take those those servers which are working perfectly well and one of the reasons they changed them is is as you said earlier the 24 the the guarantee of uptime they're so terrified that they'll have downtime that they destroy things that are still working perfectly just in case they might stop working perfectly wow okay i have two things here so one you're saying that life cycle analysis is not considered with data centers. They're not looking at what goes into manufacturing the servers. They're no. only looking at the operational time. And do they look at the, the energy used to shred those servers or discard them? That also takes energy. That, that I don't know about that side, you know, but from what I see or from what I and, and obviously not every data center company, there's I've heard of some data center. France seems to be particularly progressive in sustainable IT, that there are data centers in France that are seeking to have modular uh, servers where they they don't actually they they will change disks and processors but they'll keep the framework of the server. Uh, they can replace parts that are no longer up to perfection. Exactly. So they're trying to create a much more modular uh, type of um, environment. So there are some data centers that are beginning to think of the problems. But in a lot of cases, when they're talking about um, so-called green data centers, they're not talking about the servers, they're just talking about the electricity. And it's great that they're, they're becoming more efficient, you know, with, with electrical use, but most of the waste occurs in the device. So wait, 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 you're, you're saying so much that I have, <laughs> that I have response to, um, and I'm taking notes so that I can get it. Let me, um, so let me backtrack. Okay, I, I want to go to a figure from IEEE. Do you know IEEE? I've heard, yeah, yeah. So it's the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. And basically, they decide policy and they publish papers from engineers about 
everything related to electronics and electrical engineering. And I have a paper from IEEE explaining that before, so if we look at the cradle to grave, or some people refer to cradle to cradle energy use of a laptop, it could be of a refrigerator, it could be of anything. There's, there's energy consumed from cradle to grave. Cradle to cradle means that the product is going to have some kind of recycling. Mm -hmm. Okay, if we look at that from, and I'm, I prefer the term cradle to grave because even when there is recycling, there's still a profound amount of energy used and toxins emitted, greenhouse yeah. gases emitted. So if we do a life cycle analysis of a laptop, according to IEEE, 81% of the lifetime energy used by that laptop, so there's the design of it, which is actually energy intensive, the computers used to design these products use a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. So there's design, then there's extraction of raw materials, smelting of the raw materials, um, transporting the raw materials, usually between continents. That takes a lot of energy. Then chemicals are manufactured, the solvents, um, the all of that gets transported to the, you know, ma manufacturing the transistors, major energy intensive. Um, all of these parts get sent to the final assembly plant, and then the product is put together in a box. 81% of the energy used by this laptop in its whole lifetime, 81% will be consumed before the end user turns it on for the first time. That's embodied energy. Yeah. That means that 19% of the lifetime energy used goes to operating it, whether it's recharging it or just, you know, using it during operation plugging into electricity during operation. And then also at discard, there's yet more energy. Yeah. That's an astounding figure. It's amazing. That 81% yeah. Yeah. It's, it's is amazing. used. No, I've seen similar. Um, it's me, I wait, not, yeah, it kind of knocked me out as well. Like one, one slight variation on that I learned uh, recently was that in more commercial environments. So like a server, for example, it would be a lower figure because servers are more intensively used, so to speak, over their lifetime. They're, they're constantly on. So a kind of commercial IT would probably have maybe 50 or 60% and 40%. Okay, but, but if we replace it, every three or four no, years no, totally totally absolutely well that 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 is a, a compounds the problem but yeah i, I mean broadly for the majority of it to, totally right about 80 percent, which is amazing like i mean they say on the calculations i've been doing and looking at a, a smart a, a smartphone about 60 kg of co2 and depending on what country you're in about five kg of CO2 a year. So you'd have to use a smartphone for 12 years to create as much CO2 as has been created when you've actually just bought it. One thing is talking about efficiency. You mentioned that term in mm. terms of the electricity used by data centers. Mm -hmm. I go here to the Jevons paradox. Absolutely. And and it's not really what the Jev what Jevons understood in 1865 when he published the coal question, is that okay? What you just manufactured might be much more efficient than a previous model. So we could say it's more efficient for someone to buy a pair of denim jeans 
then to grow the cotton, um, make the, you know, harvest it and ma make the fabric themselves and then sew it up and, you know, figure out the pattern, sew it up themselves. That would take a tremendous amount of energy. However, if you do that for a million people who are going to be wearing denim jeans, well, you're going to be growing a lot more cotton. You're going to have a lot more sewing machines and you're going to be transporting those products all around on trains that will be using coal or whatever they're using to get around. And so energy efficiency actually creates great it, it increases use of energy and use of raw materials yeah now the same is true with electronics so if we have a really efficient server or a really efficient smartphone if we make one billion more of those we are extracting a lot more ores, we are doing a lot more smelting, we're transporting a lot more between continents, these raw materials before they get to the assembly plant and then before they get shipped again to the end user. So energy efficiency increases energy use and it increases use of raw materials. There's no way around it. Yeah, no, that makes it, yeah, I mean, that and, and uh, the efficiency at one level creates waste at another level because, you know, you end up coming to a situation where you, instead of keeping your jeans for 10 years, you now just keep them for two years because, hey, it's so cheap to buy jeans. Uh, right. And, and then, I mean, think of the human model. Oh, I mean, if, if aliens were looking at us and, and you were telling them, hey, we have this factory and we make jeans in it. And then when the jeans are finished, we send it to another section of the factory where we actually tear the jeans so as to make them look old. So we send them to, <laughs> we send it through another process. Um, we've built another section of the factory. One section of the factory creates this beautiful new jeans. And then it's taken and it's brought to another section of the factory where we tear the jeans. I mean, the, I mean, if you tried to present that into a an international um, universal court presided by aliens, they'd say these humans—they're not—they're bad news. You know, you know, they're, they're any any species that would come up with an idea like that, you know, is is just you know is not good news for any planet. Yeah, and I think, okay, so now, obviously, the difference between manufacturing denim jeans and distributing those around the world, I mean, I don't know, I know the dyes are very toxic, mm. but in one smartphone, there are, there are more than 1,000 substances that go into one smartphone. Yeah. Each of those has its own energy intensive, toxic waste emitting, greenhouse gas emitting supply chain. It's an international supply chain. And one of the things I've been getting to lately is that we all want to reduce our dependence on international supply chains. I don't know how that is possible right now, even for things like food. And I I mean, in order to get food, I so my husband and I do a you know, we have a vegetable garden which gives us great pleasure. Um, we might grow two percent of our own food, and you know, so that's not gonna help in terms of climate change. I do, I am also very privileged to live close enough to two grocery stores that I walk to probably every other day. And again, the pleasure is mine that I can take that walk. 
instead of getting into a car. Mm. Um, but then when once I'm at the grocery store, even if I'm getting vegetables, they're shipped from a thousand miles away. I mean, very few of them are grown, say, within a 200 mile radius, you know, about 100 kilometers. Um, so even for things like food, I am completely dependent on an international supply chain. If I was going to commit myself to local products only, I would have to stop all this communication that we're doing right now and my publishing on the internet because it's so dependent. I'm, I'm calling now um, a corporate techno global super factory. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, let's, uh, I'm just looking at, at the page, the article about the, you know, the materials in the phone. If we just, we start maybe looking at them, you know, the case, you mean, you think, oh, the case, that's surely just one material, but it's not, is it? It's Well, and what I've listed there, I, I hope, you know, please feel free to post it with the podcast. Um, that might list about a hundred of the, in, the substances in one phone. It, um, yeah, it's it's going to be that's that's a very small list compared to what's really in the phone. And then if we remember that the phone cannot function unless you've also got the access networks and the data centers and those are just major major consumers of energy and I can't even imagine the kinds of things that go into the, the, the substances that go into making those servers and um, and the air conditioners and all of that, you know, and, and the buildings, I mean, the steel and the cement in the buildings. E-waste, I mean, that was one of the big shocks for me, like over 50 million tons and every year and somebody I read somewhere they they said that's the equivalent of of dumping a thousand laptops every second, like every every second a thousand laptops uh, dumped is uh, if you want to get to fifty million tons, and that you know since two thousand and seven I think about fifteen billion smartphones have been manufactured. Uh, it, it, it's. Uh, it's an enormous, and, and then they only last a couple of years, uh, you know, they're, and they're deliberately designed to fail. One of the things I like to, <laughs> you know, ask is, okay, what could we do to reduce this profound amount of consumption and degradation, basically? and um, one of the things you keep talking about is modular electronics, where re parts are replaceable. Mm. That would be great. Um, again, it's these are all dense, but you know they're 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 hardly anything. But maybe they would add up. And then I think if we looked at if we required life cycle analysis, so when you say that um, calculations of data centers energy use only includes the operational time, it doesn't recognize what went into manufacturing those servers or replacing them or discarding them. If we can look at, if we can begin to recognize the energy that goes into extracting materials and you know refining them and assembling them i think that would help change our thinking and that's what's really needed because all of this stuff is invisible to us yeah and so how can we yeah. start to recognize it but somebody suggested we should go back to the old phone company model 
where you didn't know on the phone from Bell or yeah. from or or, or from uh, Aircom is is called in Ireland, and you know, uh, and the phone was built, you know, to uh, to outlast a nuclear war. I mean, these 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 were seriously stable, durable phones because you know they didn't want to be replacing them. That we we need to, a, a real yeah. That, that, but let me say a problem there. We and we sort of have that right now in the United States when we give children in schools, we give them Chromebooks, laptops, and sometimes mm -hmm. we give them hotspots along with it. And but then Chromebook will supposedly be owned by the school system. Yeah. But Google will own the software. Yeah. And Google will collect data about the child's oh yeah you know okay. preferences for marketing profile i mean google and facebook are ad tech companies i mean i mean yes. they are you know that's a whole other scale of problem you know but but if you if you, that means there's so many problems that need to be addressed but if we if we uh incentivize longevity and and you know designers have to you know, technical designers, or engineers have to start thinking about, you know, this needs to last 20 years. How do we design it? This needs to last 30 years. How do we design it to last 30 years? Because now they're being mandated to create things that will only last two years or, or, or three years or a maximum of four or five years. So, I mean, when you get that environment where you've got a very high uh, as you say, embodied energy in the manufacturer, and you combine that with a low life cycle, and you combine it with with very little recycling, you've got the perfect, you've got the circular economy of waste. You know the perfect circular economy of waste. Uh, it's it's you've got a a triumvirate of destructive forces at play. <laughs> well, I will say when I. Put that list together, which we'll post on the podcast of what goes into a smartphone. I had this clear dream that if every smartphone user could research one substance yeah. that goes into their phone, we'd begin to have something like enlightenment. It would be a great the, project, in a, and maybe some schools uh, yeah. will, will take that up and and. Um, you know, I, I think it's 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 you know it's a really interesting idea to tell the story. So, well, I, just an, in relation to the story, I mean, one thing that I was a little bit familiar with, but that I learned from yours. I, I, let's say I'm just looking at coltan. Tell us a little bit about it. One, they're just one of the thousand materials in a phone. Tell us a little bit of the story of coltan. So coltan is mined mostly in the Democratic Republic of Congo. It's actually a, a combination of cold, um, columbite and tantalite. When it's refined to a powder, it holds charge. It's, so it goes into batteries in smartphones and electric shavers and other mobile devices. More people have been murdered over coltan than any other single event since World War II. We're talking about more than 10 million people. Somebody asked me, you know, how does this happen? My understanding is that Democratic Republic of Congo, which is really in the heart of Africa, rich, rich, rich with ores and you know, diamonds and cobalt and coltan, all of these things that we now value. And people from other countries, from Europe and China, have come and said, okay, I'm interested in what's under this dirt. I'm going to start mining and I will need miners. And then they, they gather helpers and 
before you know it, because there is so much money involved and so much disruption of people's communities, murders have taken place. In 2018, Dennis McQuaigie, who's an MD, was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for repairing the vaginas of women who had been brutally raped over coltan. It is a major, major problem. And I, I'm not surprised that you hadn't heard of it before because there's very little that's reported about it, even though it has such a tremendous impact on so many people's lives. I read that after seeing that, that um, it's not just humans, but the uh, wildlife, the Western and Eastern lowland gorillas um the famous gorillas uh are their habitats are being decimated with mm. coltan mining as well yeah so it's it's uh and you know the, the the what you see as well in the you know i i i'm reading these books on degrowth at the moment as well that that oftentimes we take the raw materials out of the global south uh, turn them into products somewhere else in the global south. It would pour, then they get used in the global north, and then they often get shipped back as waste to the very countries that they yes. were originally mined in to pollute the rivers and destroy and to be smelted by children. So we get at one end of the production chain children digging, you know, in 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 the earth to get these raw materials. And then finally they come back as an old smartphone and the children burn the smartphone to get the materials back out of them to send back to the, uh, to the North. You know, and that's why in, in place in the United States and Ireland, we say, well, it's, things have got better. You know, the pollution levels have declined and, you know, the, isn't the world getting better? Well, we've outsourced our pollution. And, the, and so there again, if we can look at life cycle analysis from cradle to grave, so for example, if we're manufacturing electric vehicles and we say, these are green and clean. However, <laughs> when we say that, we have not recognized what goes into manufacturing those vehicles or their batteries or their chargers or the power plants that keep them recharged. So if we could recognize the full life cycle of extractions and energy use and worker hazards, then we would not be able to say that something is sustainable. We would not be able to say that it's green or clean or zero emitting or net neutral or carbon neutral, anything like that. I've been checking these, you know, these figures for the relationship, you know, the the amount of CO2 created per kilowatt hour of electricity. And some countries like I saw, oh, in Norway, it's, it's 20 and in Iceland, it's it's zero. Like, how, how can it be zero? Uh, how can you have a figure for zero in these? And, and as far as I can understand, it's zero because they don't account for the for the cement that was used to create the dam the for the water the hydroelectricity they they just they just measure the production of the electricity and that it's 100% created by wind or it's 100% water or you're going to get a zero score so we're not there's a lot of there's a lot of creative accounting going on in in this uh, sustainability world i'm interested in taking responsibility for myself that's that's a basic thing i like to do in my life and right now that means becoming aware of my impacts as i use computers and at the same time i recognize that I can't really function in this society if I don't use a computer. Yeah. So that's a conundrum that I live with. You know, I grew up on a small farm 
in Ireland. We we didn't even have tractors. So I spent when I was quite young, I spent summer days just walking around the field of hay with a fork. And then, you know, the man, it's not a fork at the table, turning hay. And I, I, if you've done that for a while, and, and we and there was a farmer up the road who had a tractor and, and rowers and things like that. And occasionally the farmer up the road would be kind and he would see his tractor coming in the field. And it would be so exciting because he, he would do in 15 minutes what would spend, take us a day and a half or, or, or two yes. days to actually do. So I, I, don't, I don't want to return to that. Like I, I've been there manually working the farm and it's no fun. So I like technology, but it's, it's, it's within reason. It's not that we shouldn't have a computer. It's not that we shouldn't have the internet. But I've been doing these calculations on on um, on photographs, and and we, as according to my calculations, we we took more photographs in 2020 than in the entire 20th century. Oh, do you ha could you send that to me? I would love to see that. I'd say I haven't fully finished the the research on it. I will send it when I've. Finished it totally, but but in in the current, in, we're taking about one point four trillion photos a year, right? Uh, according to the sources I, I have, and in the entire twentieth century, we took about one point two trillion or one point three trillion photos. Like it's so it's not that I'm not saying don't take photos, but like do we really need to take one point four trillion photos every year? Wow, that's astounding. Okay. <laughs> I, I'll tell you another figure I just learned. Maybe this can help us bring this to a close. If I, so my husband and I live in a, um, we have four rooms. We, we rent this house and we have a refrigerator and a washing machine. We have a dryer that I do not use. I hang the the clothes to dry um i've got this computer of course um we have a radio we have a dvd player we have a blender and an oven um you know and a stovetop okay if and we have lights so i'm going to call this an average household we don't have a television but if i we're going to get rid of the electricity. I would need 41 servants to, to provide everything we have here, like to, you know, to harvest the wood and split it up and burn it, keep, keep the fire going during the winter, um, to blow the fans during the summer, to preserve the food, um, to wash the clothes we would need 41 servants to keep this household going. Wow. And that, that fits with what you're saying, you know, you needed to do on the farm with the pitchfork to keep your farm going, you know, for what, one and a half. It's not no technology, but it's technology within reason. Yeah, we don't, you know, maybe 1.4 billion photographs is, and we'd be happier because most of the people I know, my wife loves taking photographs, but sometimes she disappears literally for a couple of days to try and organize and delete the, the, the ones that that she's yeah. taken, you know, because it has just overloaded her, you know, to a point where she can't find the good ones. And, you know, we, we have become such create. We're not just consumers anymore. We're creators. You know, we, we consume ourselves. And our friends, you know, in, in the process and a lot of the stuff that we create or whatever that we run through, you know, it, it's not it's not very good. And so we could have like you're holding on to your computer. There was a study done by I think they called the UK Green Alliance. And they said, if you were to keep a, a laptop from a, for a sustainable period so that, you know, it depreciates its cost, its CO2 
was was spread in a reasonable way across time, it would be about 20 years. You know, it, that, that, and you'd need to keep a fridge for, I don't know, 12 years or 14 years. So, you know, we're now we're keeping the, the average laptop for about four years, four and a half years. So we're it's not that we shouldn't have laptops, but we need laptops that last 20 years. We need phones that last 12 years. And then the when we put an, yet another um, generation of access networks in, like if we go to 5G, for example, yeah. that will just create another intense layer of energy use and raw materials extracted and what we have and keep that in good repair, keep the, exactly. the fourth generation in good repair. We're still actually using 3G in some cases. Um, that so, so again, our thinking needs to change so that we, we make use of what we have and we can teach young people to learn, to, to, to become good mechanics and to repair what we have. Exactly. That, yeah, yeah. Um, and that we have enough. <laughs> you know, when will we yes. ever have enough? I mean, it's like, you know, I, I, I think, like I look at myself here now and I work on the, the web. I don't need 5G. I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to use this for? Like, I'm perfectly happy with what I have. 4G. So Miguel Coma, Miguel Coma has written about that, that, that 5G is excellent within a factory exactly. to, support, to support communication between robots. But we don't need to distribute it internationally or around a city, for example, or a neighborhood. We can there. What we have is sufficient, but within a factory, okay, fine. A, a private network might make use of it. You know, you, you're a model, you and your husband. Uh, you know that. Uh, I, you know, the rest of the world needs to begin to look to. You know that we can live well. We can live well. well. And, you know, I'll say. <laughs> People have been saying this lately that we're a model, and I'll tell you, I don't consider us models. Um, and here's why. When I was, I, I spoke at, I had great privilege three years ago, I spoke at the United Nations, and I met Sumya Dutta, who co-founded India Climate Justice. And he explained to me that in Bangladesh, people use per year 300 kgoe. That's 300 kilograms of oil equivalent per year. In India, people use 600 kgoe per year, 600 kilograms of oil equivalent. In the United States, the average person uses 6,000 kgoe per year. So if I'm interested in balance ecologically and for, you know, for all people to have running water and toilets and electricity for lights, that means that I must reduce my consumption drastically. And this is, we are not models here. We, we're, st I'm still dependent on that international supply chain factory system to I, provide our food yeah, and everything. I mean, in the context of our imperfect world and where we're at and where most of the rest of people are at, your model, you, you know, we have so much further to go we will never, or, or it'll take 50 years or 70 years, even if we change now, to really reshape and re restructure things. But I think you have done immeasurably more than 95% of people, you know, and still, I know, you, as you say, still way off the mark of, of you know, rebalancing the, the you know, the, the earth and, and sustainability. But all we can do is, you know, 
what we can do. And, and you know, I'll tell you, if, if everyone in the United States or in Ireland or Germany or France had done what you, your husband and you have done, we, we, would be, we would be further on the road. Well, I'll say two things. One, I think the, the most significant thing I've done is question my assumptions. And so I started hearing 25 years ago that using a computer was green and clean. And I started saying, really, is that true? <laughs> That's the only question I'm asking, is that true? And then this information has come to me just from asking, gosh, is that true? And then I will tell you, if you make me the leader of the world, that's a joke, of course, it's not a job I want, but if you do it, I would make sure that every household got at least two raised beds with insulating covers and that the soil would come from compost. And I am blessed because in my city, we have a compost place where this man collects kitchen scraps from all the restaurants around town and makes fantastic compost, which you can buy. And it's wonderful nutrient dense soil for growing vegetables. And we have our own compost too with worms, but um, it's very, even though we feed that compost a lot every day, it, it's much better to get it from this, this place uh, that, you know, he, he's got a great system. Right. Um, and anyway, that, so I think that's a start and may every child learn to grow at least three vegetables and, and also do reading, wrath, reading math and writing on paper before they get electronics. So those are some of my dreams. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.